Thanks very much. Uh, before I start, I have to say rather guiltily, um, those of you who have read with great care uh, Todd Hill's Democracy in America, in a sense, need listen no further. Um, I, I, will, I will be teaching you nothing new. Even to contemplate the contemporary decline of America is implicitly to acknowledge its recent greatness. It is also to assume that we know what first made it great. The economic and political predominance of the United States since 1945 seemingly renders that question otios. Yet appearances can deceive. More than a century before Henry R. Luce announced the American century, Alexis de Tocqueville discovered an age of America. And he pointed to something both subtly different and far more important. Luce knew power when he saw it, but he dressed it in decent drapery when he recognized it as his own. What Tocqueville discovered on the far western shores of civilization was nothing less than democracy's transcending nation. So if America really is in decline, then the whole world is about to suffer a more grievous loss than even its most intransigent foes now imagine. But is it? And if so, how would Tocqueville have explained its melancholy fate? And why, finally, should Americans pay any heed to his counsel now? He was, after all, scarcely the first to have discovered something special in America. Natives from John Winthrop to Thomas Jefferson had long been convinced of its peculiar calling. He was not even the first European to disclose its potentially universal possibilities. That was Hegel. Tocqueville's importance lies rather in, rather in the, the historical scope and the sociological force of his prognosis for Americans' greatness. The country depicted in democracy in America was a majestic huge, rich, and free. But it was also a modern regime in which individual excellence, greatness of soul, remained possible. Paradoxically, it seemed, the home of modern democracy had surreptitiously preserved a place for aristocracy. Whether men will be always so wise as to keep it that way remained and remains to be seen. Of course, Tocqueville's American journey did not begin with that insight. He first traveled west to find out how to make modern Republican principles work. For the Americans had mastered that task better than any other people to date. But what he found was something altogether more remarkable. This was a people defined by the doctrine of equality of conditions. That idea extended its influence throughout American government and laws, into society and mores, even into the most intimate interst interstices of the nuclear family. It affected every aspect of indigenous, indigenous economic life as well. For the habits of equality turned men away from the ancient calling of agriculture to modern concerns like commerce and industry. They made every honest profession honorable, quote unquote. This made Americans socially mobile but also psychologically restless. Similarly cash rich but time poor. Too busy to enjoy much leisure, too active to concern themselves with the purely theoretical, they had nonetheless forged a new civilization that was practical without being philistine. Their best literature was found in newspapers. Their favorite authors were journalists. Yet so far from being appalled by what he saw, Tocqueville was thrilled. He had seen the future, and this one really worked. America was already prosperous. Its future promised hitherto untold riches. America was already vast, but it was expanding at the rate of a new city every day. So much so, and I now quote, a time is imminent when the Anglo-Americans will cover the whole space of 
between the polar ice and the tropics, simultaneously spreading from the shores of the Atlantic Ocean to the South Sea. And when this happens, 150 million men, equal amongst themselves, who have the same point of departure, the same civilization, the same language, the same religion, the same habits and the same mores, will become the transcending nation of the democratic revolution that is taking place amongst us. Note perhaps transcending but not unopposed. For Tocqueville, there were then two potentially great people on earth. These were the Anglo-Americans and what he called the Russians. Others had reached their natural limits, but these two were both growing, of course, according to quite different principles. The one, America, struggled mainly against the obstacles that nature had opposed to man. The other, Russia, grappled against mankind himself. The first allowed for the undirected force and reason of individuals. The second concentrated all the power of society into one man. The first had freedom for its principal means of action, the second servitude. No wonder so many Cold War intellectuals took Tocqueville for their mentor half a century ago. And little surprise, too, that recent Cassandras have since substituted the defunct Soviet Union by a belatedly dynamic communist China as the principal threat to America's preeminence in the world. I suggest, however, we would do better first to acknowledge the extraordinarily atypical significance of Tocqueville's prediction about the unfolding American era. European travelers to the United States were actually quite common during the post-Napoleonic period, but very few reached similar conclusions about the Republic's future prospects. Most, in truth be told, came first to gawp at Niagara Falls and then to sneer at Boston society's manners. <laughs> and Fanny Trollope was perhaps only the most famous of those. Even the more sim sympathetic, and I now quote, seldom grasp the sheer significance <coughs> of this American fact entirely new in the world. Edward Stanley, future 14th Earl of Derby and three times Prime Minister of England, actually declared himself deeply impressed by the vitality of the American people in the 1820s. But he considered the American style of politics vulgar, well he would, wouldn't he? <laughs> and the South's <laughs> continuing attachment to slavery potentially fatal. That a redeemed republic might actually embody the future of Western civilization simply never occurred to him. And ironically, that sense of America as being no more than a passing phase in the history of the West actually became more rather than less pronounced as the century progressed. Robert Cecil, later third Marcus of Salisbury, and Empress Victoria's greatest premier, insisted that the peculiar institution would eventually divide the new nation and permanently weaken England's principal industrial competitor. Hoped it might. Even so shrewd an observer as Walter Badgett argued that America's inefficient political institutions, and by that he meant the separation of powers, would permanently ensure its continued comparative underperformance. And this would be true whether united or otherwise. And those, let me assure you, were amongst the saner of the contemporary critiques. Count Gobineau, in fact, suggested that the influx of Southern Europeans into America during the 1830s and 1840s degenerative dynamic that he believed Tocqueville had neglected would quickly condemn the new world to the most extreme version of old Europe's worst mongrelizing tendencies. For him, America was in fact the place where Western civilization would die. It is thus the peculiarity of Tocqueville's prognosis that best justifies our continuing interest in his analysis. Of course, the 20th century vindicated Tocqueville's prediction that America would become great. But it may be only now that we can 
begin to appreciate the reasons why he thought this was so. For his most important arguments still remain oddly ill-understood. Moreover, the, the value of that exercise has been far from purely academic. For lurking behind that analysis, that is, his analysis of its greatness, present and future, was also a theory of possible decline. That is, a delineation of those degenerative dynamics that might eventually render democratic America something less than a great nation. At a time of heightened national uncertainty, they may be worth a closer look. Most 19th century Europeans emphasized the primary significance of the literal good fortune of America. Physical isolation, thus freedom from foreign invasion, guaranteed its security. Abundant natural resources made it rich. The locals were rather more inclined to celebrate their achievements than their inheritance. And these they attributed either to native virtue, which drove American industry, or to the excellence of those republican institutions which protected its liberties. John Adams, remember, famously thought the French incapable of either. But Tocqueville saw little comparative explanatory value either in the infirmity of the French or in Anglo-Saxon good fortune. And intriguingly, he uncovered relatively little in the way of new virtues in the United States. Perhaps more intriguingly still, he was actually unconvinced of the infallibility of its constitution. Indeed, democracy in America, if you read it, makes very little either of 1776 or 1787. It's a work in which the American Revolution is all but silent. Many commentators have argued that this is because Tocqueville imagined the Anglo-Americans to have been born a free and equal people from the moment they arrived on Plymouth Rock. And some modern historians, for instance, Gordon Wood, have insisted he errs that he neglected the transformative radicalism of the American Revolution and he had missed the decisive social and political upheaval that was taking place around him when he wrote. I think these charges are misplaced. Read rightly, I think Tocqueville conceived of the Anglo-Americans as having been born less in freedom, certain freedoms we understand it, and more out of what he called the spirit of religion, albeit yoked to the spirit of liberty. He had no doubt that it was the imperatives of faith that predominated, and often to strikingly illiberal effect in 17th century New England. Remember those witch trials? Well, Tocqueville did. But he also noted that those enormities in fact constituted proof that the Anglo-Americans were from the beginning a self-governing people. So what he called their sometimes bizarre and tyrannical laws were never imposed upon them. They were voted by the free concurrence of all interested persons. Further, he suggested, the intervention of the people in public affairs, free voting of taxes, responsibility of the agents of power, individual freedom of judgment by jury, were quickly established there as matters of fact. There was something else. The Anglo-American colonies were founded not so much by a society of equals, certainly not as, as we would understand it, but as amongst a loosely organized people. And that freed the Americans, at least psychologically, from the imper pressing imperative of abolishing an aristocracy. True, the revolution rid America of rank and its privileges, but that merely rendered formal what history had already made real. More importantly, it left the Americans freer, and by that he meant freer than the contemporary post-revolutionary French, to borrow certain liberal features from aristocracy in order to bolster liberty in their fledgling democracy. And many of these institutions, he believed, survived from Jacksonian. They included the jury, and 
in the legal profession more generally, local self-government, free speech, and a free press. They also included religion itself, something he called, quote, the most precious inheritance of aristocratic centuries. That was crucial for Tolstoy. What he meant was that both overt religion and covert aristocracy informed democratic America. Most other observers simply assumed that all forms of hierarchy had been entirely vanquished there. Jackson has indeed made a virtue of his contribution to that. Fortunately, he was mistaken. Other apologists believe that unenlightened faith was similarly destined to eclipse in America. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson happily predicted that, quote, every young American alive in the 1820s will die a Unitarian. But Trinitarian Christianity actually thrived in 19th century America. And together, old survivals and an old Christianity ensured that free institutions, whether as old survivals or also free associations, a modern innovation, did too. These together kept the Americans moral and they even made them noble, sufficiently at least to sustain liberty in a democratic republic. It was that social state as Tocqueville observed it in the 1830s, that he believed paved the way for American greatness. Now this was, and the point needs to be reiterated, for the most part a state of equality. I do mean equality of conditions. That matter, for equality of conditions, coupled with the inherent insecurity that such similarity bred, drove the Americans towards industry and commerce, indeed drove them in a relentless pursuit of wealth. This brought them much prosperity, if perhaps little happiness. But it did not make them materialists. Their religion ensured against that. Nor did it reduce them to what he called the pathology of individualism. What he means by that is the detachment of the self from the concerns of the community. Rather, it nurtured in them the peculiar modern morality of what he called self-interest well understood. And that made them not just honest and temperate, but also, and this is the point, sufficiently public-spirited. Their institutions did the rest, for Jacksonian America combined a federalist constitution with an anti-federalist form of politics. Madison's medicine may have furnished the Americans with a strong national government, but the natives refused to yield up their English inheritance of self-rule in the townships. Meanwhile, pressing demands, the pressing demands of egalitarian America induced them to create a multitude of free associations with which to compensate for their individual these organizations, free associations, became for Tocqueville the true aristocrats of democracy. Their stature simultaneously enabled plain citizens to exercise real freedom, but also permitted busy men to make significant sacrifices for the public good. Self-government by free association, then, enabled ordinary Americans both to assume the responsibility of rule and to take pride in their defense of liberty. Put another way, they enabled ordinary Americans to be simple men and great souls at the same time. Writ large, those men subdued the world after 1941. But could such a happy conjunction last forever? Tocqueville never said. Many believe his real views were much more pessimistic. For them, the sunny portrait of America outlined in Volume 1 must be balanced against the darker vision of democracy delineated in Volume 2. Thus, the implication of the whole work, read correctly, is stark. In effect, America will go the way of all the other democracies, <coughs> only just a bit more slowly. Others, in fact, have suggested that Tocqueville's apparent silence 
about America after 1840 proved that he subsequently came to despair both of democracy generally and America in particular. But the lie is given to that thesis by the fact that even <coughs> his most gloomy conclusions about democracy, essayed in volume two, can in fact be traced back to the notebooks he composed in America during his first and only journey. The truth, I think, is more subtle. Tocqueville really did believe in America's future greatness, but he allowed for the possibility of its subsequent decline. Moreover, he conceived of both from the first. That is why he wrote Democracy in America simultaneously as a chronicle of, of the past and as a history of the future. He made his optimism explicit, but the pessimism is, is there for those capable of reading between the lines. Where are you? Alone amongst 19th century theorists, Tocqueville insisted on the continuing vitality of denominational Trinitarian Christianity to the future health of liberal democracy. This was because he believed by by religion, but he meant that very specific form of religion, more than anything else, elevated as he socialized and moralized the denizens of a commercial society. However, the problem was that whilst religion gave so much to democracy, democracy little by little undermined religion, in doctrine and eventually in effect too. Contemporary optimists thought rather it made, simply made religion more rational and called the case of Jefferson. Tocqueville suggested on the contrary it rendered religion ever more materialistic. And the, the eventual result of that, unprevented, would be a universal pantheism and the destruction of human individuality. He had no doubt the democratic peoples were tending in that direction, even his own time, even possibly America. Was he right? Well, to be sure, and certainly by any European comparison, America remains a Christian nation. But it's worth acknowledging, I think, that a greater proportion of Americans than ever now acknowledge no religion at all, and that their numbers are by no means confined to the professoriate. Today, what are called nothing in particular, as it seems to be the best way of capturing these people in the American context, make up perhaps 20% of the population, and are curiously most common amongst Asian men. Moreover, the purposes of religion in America are confined more than ever to an increasingly legalistic interpretation of the First Amendment. And perhaps most ominously of all, American politics is now perhaps just beginning to divide between a party of faith and a party of the secular. Experience elsewhere suggests that common commitment does not long survive such partisanship. This is important anyway, but it's of peculiar importance <coughs> in an American context. For a pervasive Christianity crucially informed the general instinct towards self-government in America. The, Amer the Anglo-Americans became true citizens because they were governed by something other than their desire for material well-being and inspired by something other than the comforts of individualistic detachment. It's a sociological commonplace that people wholly shorn of such motivation will gradually cease to defend any recognizable common good at all. It was Tocqueville's peculiar insight to suggest that they will sim simultaneously re relinquish their new nobility, free associations, just as they passed with their inherited aristocratic longing pride in governing themselves. In the worst case to believe, they will eventually cease to think for themselves at all. These are the sorts of people who would, he believed, become the ideal subjects for what he called the kind of despotism that democratic nations have most to fear. It's not monarchical tyranny. It's not even the totalitarian nightmare of recent vintage. It's rather an altogether different kind of what he called tutelary power, 
one that I now quote, resembles paternal authority in seeking to fix men irrevocably in childhood, but works its way not through fear, but in parent, apparent felicity, quote, by providing for their security, conducting their affairs, directing their industry, even taking away from them the pain of living. It's what the English have learned to call the nanny state. And there is, I think, a curious convergence amongst contemporary con commentators about just how far America has gone down that road during the past 60 years. I say curious contemporary convergence because in different ways it's held on both sides of the political divide. Those on the right, of course, would point to the, the deleterious effects of the New Deal and the intrusive centralization of government, notably concerning the regulation of business and commerce. But even those on the left are concerned with things like the decline of free associations and what they call the degradation of local communities. Conservatives rightly emphasize the passing of individual responsibility. Radicals highlight the collapse of collective concern. But both might consider the broader significance of the diminution of there is anyway no need to subscribe to the sociology of bowling alone to appreciate that something serious is afoot here. For the kind of government that Tocqueville warned the true friends of democracy against is now precisely the sort of social administration that many welfare economists openly advocate, one concerned with the happiness of the citizens. Tocqueville never believed that such developments were inevitable, not at least in America. He did, however, insist that the centralization of government bureaucratization of life more generally, and the withering of the religious spirit were inherent in what he called the nature of democracy. However, they could be confounded, that is, local liberties and individual independence sustained, through what he called the arts of democracy. And he believed the Americans of his day had mastered those arts peculiarly well. They'd done so in part because they'd been fortunate in their inheritance but they'd also been wise in their choices and they remain severe in their morals. Are they still? Or is the nature of democracy beginning to subvert the arts of democracy, even in America? Those are questions which I think are, which are at least worth posing. Will our answers be too vague? Well, let me say something in favor of vagueness. Most theories of decline, I suspect, err in their very precision. They seek to identify not just the moment of decline, but also its particular causes. Many think we have reached that moment now. But in a curious kind of way, we've been here before. The United States, remember, has been the world's largest economy only since probably around the mid-1880s. And it has been the world's preeminent geopolitical power for a period actually shorter than what is now a normal man's lifetime. Yet predictions of its passing, either in military might or in economic clout, have accompanied that predominance almost from the start. Remember, Sputnik and the missile gap and Khrushchev's boastful threat. They provided much for, uh, um, food for national soul-searching soul in the late 1950s. Ironically, Luce took a considerable part in those debates himself. But then 20 years on, stagflation, an energy crisis, and repeated foreign policy failures provoked a hapless President Carter, we, we seem to mention him a lot, sir, uh, <laughs> into doing much the same 20 years later. As a matter of fact, he never actually said national malaise, but, but everyone thought he meant it. Perhaps it is different this time. Perhaps a quasi-capitalist China will not break up like the USSR did, or fizzle out like the Japanese economic miracle. But if you want to be optimistic, though it's a curious way of being optimistic, think of a few facts. By 2050, the world's largest, third largest population 
Chinese old age pensions. Long before then, those men in China, probably no less than 2030, men in China aged 25 to 44 will outnumber Chinese women of the same cohorts by a ratio of 125 to 100. Might be a good time to be a Chinese man. If America really is in decline, then it may not be China that overtakes it. It may not even be for one specific reason. But I do think it will result in one specific thing. This will be the eclipse of the world's preeminent liberal republic. That is not a prospect to be fondly anticipated. But it has been contemplated, and by a friend of America too. This was not Tocqueville, in fact. The Hungarian patriot Louis Kossuth, who observed in 1852, and I quote, that it was America's destiny to become the cornerstone of, the li of liberty on earth. But then he added, should the Republic of America ever lose consciousness of this destiny, that moment would be just as surely the beginning of American decline as the 19th of April 1775 is the beginning of the, of, of the Republic of America. One last thought. What Tocqueville understood, I think, was that this cornerstone of liberty was the product not just of an idea, but also of an inheritance. Too many Americans, I suspect, and this may be true on both sides of the political divide, still conceive of their country solely in terms of an abstract idea. But it was truly the outcome of an idea conceived in a peculiar historical context. This is one reason, surely, why it has proved so much easier to nurture at home than it has been to export it abroad. But Tocqueville predicted that as well. His America was an exemplary nation rather than Hegel's universal republic. And to understand that, I think, is how to appreciate how America's continuing greatness will be more a matter of preservation than theoretical reevaluation. For the arts of democracy beckon still to America and for the friends of America as well. Jeremy Black. Um, I thought that was really, sorry, let me just take this. I thought that was really interesting, Simon. I think you'll.